Good day, and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleiman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. On June 15, the U.S. Bureau of Land Management will hold a public comment session on oil drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which the Trump administration opened to development as part of its December tax reform. The BLM will use the meeting, which takes place in Washington, D.C., to gather input ahead of its environmental impact statement on energy development in the refuge, which is home to some of the United States' greatest wildlife populations and possibly some of its richest oil reserves. The opening of the Anwar is the culmination of a decades-long battle fought at state and federal levels to gain access to possibly 10 billion barrels of technically recoverable oil reserves and speed a recent uptick of Alaskan oil production that follows nearly three decades of decline. More broadly, the opening of the Anwar is part of the Trump administration's plan to increase oil output and achieve its stated goal of global energy dominance. On today's podcast, we'll take a look at the long history of energy development in Alaska and how the state's economy has been intimately tied to the oil industry's fortunes. We'll get one insider's perspective on how Alaskans view their relationship to energy and the environment and how the often competing priorities of energy development, budgets, and environment are being weighed as potential new oil development is on the horizon. Today's guest is Lois Epstein, Arctic Program Director with the Wilderness Society in Alaska. Lois, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. Lois's work focuses on the safety and environmental impact of Arctic oil and gas operations. Lois has served on a number of federal advisory committees, including two National Academy of Sciences committees studying oil and gas regulations. She has also testified more than a dozen times on energy and environmental issues before the U.S. House and Senate. Lois, I wonder if you might start out by giving us a view of your work and that of the Wilderness Society in Alaska. Sure. Um, thank you once again for inviting me to speak about what I think is a very fascinating subject. Uh, primarily, I'm going to be talking about the Arctic in Alaska. And uh, as you noted, my background is engineering, and I've been in Alaska uh, since 2001. I came here from D.C., and most of my career I've worked at the interface of engineering and policy involving the oil and gas industry. And in terms of the Wilderness Society, which is a national nonprofit conservation organization, we've, in fact, been working in Alaska since the 1930s with our scientists there. Um, we are focused on protecting public lands, federal lands. Uh, those are the most sensitive land. And in the Arctic, you have two areas to the west, you have something which is awkwardly named the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska. It's an artifact of a 1923 decision where the oil that was surfacing on the ground there was considered very important to the Navy. Um, But nevertheless, it's it's still called the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska. That's a mixed-use area where some areas are very sensitive, uh, it's owned by the federal government, um, and about half the, the lands and waters there are open to oil development. Those are the less sensitive places, areas uh, like the Teshapuk Lake region. That's uh, a freshwater lake where migratory birds from around the world come. Uh, and there's a, and a very important caribou herd there that is utilized and harvested by communities. Um, Quite, quite important ecologically, that's the National Petroleum Reserve, half-and-half half sensitive, uh, less sensitive areas, and oil development allowed in less sensitive areas. 
He moved to the east uh, in, in the central Arctic part of Alaska. You have the state lands where there's been oil development for many decades now. Prudhoe Bay, uh, the Alpine area, major operators like BP, ConocoPhillips, Exxon have been there for uh, many years. Uh, just to give some perspective, about 17 billion barrels of oil have, have been produced there. That's a very large number. And then to the east of that is the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. That's abuts Canada. Um, and there, uh, there's a very, very narrow coastal plain. To the west is much wider. And that's important because uh, to the south are, are mountains. When you have just a small, narrow ecosystem there, it's going to be extra sensitive for both the caribou that come there. They they often calve their young there. Uh, they get insect relief. Uh, you can imagine it would be quite windy, and Alaska is known for its mosquitoes. And if you have babies, you don't want to expend a lot of energy dealing with, with insects, as well as predators. Uh, when it's flat and it's the coastal plain, you can see uh, the predators coming from far away. So that's an Extremely sensitive. It's a national treasure, um, and federal lands right now, you know, the equivalent uh, of Yellowstone, Grand Canyon in terms of beauty and sensitivity. So, of course, we care greatly about that and are very disappointed that it was um, essentially uh, drilling in the coastal plain was snuck in uh, to the tax tax act that was passed in December. Um, it's a small provision, just a couple pages tacked at the end, but very significant consequences for Arctic Alaska. And then last, uh, we also work on the Arctic offshore, uh, and uh, Shell, uh, over the past few years, has decided to pull out of there. It's, it's too difficult um, to, and very expensive to find oil and gas and develop it off there. Uh, well, they had a rig some, run aground a few years ago, is that correct? Uh, yeah, the um, the drilling rig uh, did. Uh, transport, I like to let people know that it's not just the drilling, but the transport and op operations are extremely difficult, not just in the Arctic, but getting to and from the Arctic, and that happened in uh, central, south-central Alaska. So um, they, they've pulled out. There are some... Uh, oil and gas, uh, mostly oil operations uh, near shore, um, but they are in the offshore, and th those are ongoing. The Obama administration withdrew the vast majority of the Arctic Ocean, the Chukchi and the Beaufort Sea, from additional leases. That's been overturned by the Trump administration. It's going into court because uh, we don't agree they could overturn that. But there was an area near shore where there are oil and gas operations on man-made islands, and those are continuing. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that this opening of the Anwar was part of the uh, the, the tax reform bill in December. Um, what was the justification for putting this into that bill? I mean, again, that was a tax bill. Here we're talking about oil and gas drilling in you know, a, a, a natural area. Why was that tacked on? What was the justification? Well, I, 
will have to speak for the Trump administration or for Senator Murkowski, which is kind of an awkward thing for me to do. But um, uh, President Trump has said that he wanted to get that in there because it was something other administrations have not been able to do. Um, it had been protected in a bipartisan way for for decades, uh, literally since 1980, when a federal law uh, called the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act set it aside, did not allow uh, drilling, left that up to Congress. And there have been numerous votes over the years. And finally, this particular Congress was able to, to get it there uh, over the finish line. Uh, so so now uh, you have a very swift time frame. They're, they're doing something that just has never been done. I would argue there isn't even a a, a uh, an energy need for that oil, but they would say, you know, we need to be energy dominant. Um, and then Senator Mikowski, uh from Alaska is head of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, and this has been something that her, both her father, who was also a senator, and others in Alaska have, have wanted because uh, it means more uh, resource development in Alaska. Um, but I could. Have, I also think uh, the flip side is is important. There is resource potentially there, as you mentioned in your introduction. But it is uh, some, from a natural standpoint, has some unique characteristics across the border. There was a treaty uh, developed during the the Reagan administration with Canada that said the porcupine caribou herd uh, that migrates. Uh, back and forth across the border, and and as I mentioned, calves um, and uh, survives on the coastal plain after calving. Two hundred thousand caribou. That's that's what the treaty covers. Um, the Alaska Native people, known as Gwich'in, in both uh, Alaska and the First Nations uh, Gwich'in in Canada, they rely on that herd. So this is it's both a human rights issue and a natural issue. Uh, and, and and an overall conservation issues. Just uh, migratory birds from all 50 states come to the refuge to breed, and it's been protected since 1980. So it was quite the battle and quite the triumph for those who want to see energy development just about everywhere. And to take that energy development theme one step further, this is pretty much a done deal from from my understanding. Uh, the first lease sale for those oil and gas areas in the coastal plain. Uh, will be held within the next four years. I think I believe that's kind of the mandate uh, that came along with this for 400,000 acres. That's a, obviously a very significant, um, a, a, you know, a territory. So, so with that in mind, uh, the BLM, uh, which is charged with managing federal lands and is part of the Department of the Interior, will be holding a public comment meeting, comment meeting, excuse me, in Washington this Friday ahead of its environmental impact assessment on oil development in the ANWR, ANWR. What type of input specifically will the BLM be looking for? So this uh, public comment meeting will be in Washington, D.C. There uh, have been several hearings in Alaska, um, and there's two to come tomorrow. Uh, this is the only meeting and hearing that will be outside the state. Uh, they're expected to be folks from throughout the Northeast that will come. Uh, the way it's 
going to be set up um, is that initially there'll be some statements from Alaska officials, whether they are elected uh, or they are representing tribes. Uh, there'll be some officials from conservation organizations, and then there'll also be some industry representatives, although I don't expect there to be any oil companies, interestingly. Uh, they are getting their views across, uh, and this is what they did in Alaska, through labor unions and trade associations. So you you won't probably won't hear uh, ExxonMobil, for example, saying they want to drill there. They'll, they'll have others uh, speak for them. Uh, but uh, essentially, uh, back to your question about whether this is a, a fait accompli, uh, yes, it's uh, Congress passed this drilling section as part of the Tax Act. Um, however, uh, the environmental analyses of this area, which uh, to date has been almost entirely pristine, there's only been one well drilled, uh, they're going to be extensive. There's, there's a lot that has to be learned about the, uh, the impacts of an oil and gas operation on these different migratory birds on the herd. Uh, there's going to be analyses that we now understand that when you have uh, burning fossil fuels, something called black carbon is created, and that ends up on the snow and on the landscape, and that's going to uh, accelerate the impact that's already occurring of climate change. So there's a really extensive environmental analysis that has to be done. Um, if, it's no, if it's done too quickly and too many corners are cut, there's going to be litigation. Uh, there's um, always the possibility that the law could be changed. There is, in fact, um, a bill that uh, several representatives in the House have introduced to overturn this. Uh, you know, it's not going to be passed unrealistic uh, during this current Congress, but who knows what will happen with elections coming up. Uh, this is not a very popular bill in the lower 48 provision. In the lower 48, uh, it's not popular to to pursue oil and gas drilling from all the polls I've seen. And in Alaska, all the polls that have been done were done before it became a reality. So um, there's tremendous opposition to this measure at the Fairbanks hearing, um, many, many people didn't even have a chance to speak and stood up at the end and said, we oppose this and we would like another hearing. And in Anchorage, it was it was more mixed, but um, there's this assumption that everyone in Alaska wants to see this happen, and that is just not true. You know, one of the things that always that is always a question to me is what is the balance of jobs versus the development versus the environment? And uh, as you mentioned earlier, this uh, upcoming meeting in D.C. this Friday is going to be the culmination of a, a number of meetings. I think you said there's two going on today. The, the first meeting actually took place in a very small town. Uh, the name is Kaktivik, I believe is what it is. It's 240 people live there. It's right on the border of the Anwar. Um, what kind of perspectives have you heard out of that meeting? Do the people see this as an opportunity for jobs, as an affront to the environment? Those, you know, upfront perspectives, what are they? So uh, Kaktovic is located, uh, it's the only village within the Arctic Refuge, quite small, about 250 people. Uh, their public hearing was postponed, and that will be one of the hearings 
tomorrow, there was a death in the village, and you can imagine in such a small community, that's a, a very significant event. So Kaktovik will be tomorrow. The first actual hearing was in a place called Arctic Village, which is um, populated by Gwich'in. Uh, those are the Alaska Natives and First Nations uh, that I spoke about. Uh, and I don't know if we're going to have the opportunity to go into what it means, but those are sovereign nations. Um, and at that hearing, I, I wasn't there, but I heard the reports, uh, unified opposition to drilling. They are not located in the coastal plain. They are outside the, just outside the Arctic uh, National Wildlife Refuge. But um, they rely on that caribou, that, that calf, and they are, as everything I have heard, 100% opposed. Kaktovik, um, those are Inupiat. You know, the anthropology in Alaska is quite interesting. Those are Eskimos. They rely um, quite a bit on whaling. Uh, they're on the coast. Uh, for their subsistence, not to say there are not some Inupiat that are hunters and, and care about caribou and others as well. Um, so they, they are more mixed about drilling in the Arctic Refuge. They also have, um, and this is a, a complicated issue in and of itself, um, there is a, uh, native, a law that created native corporations, and there's something called the Arctic Slope Regional Corporation. So residents of Koktovik benefit quite a bit uh, economically through their native corporation. Uh, so uh, whereas the Gwich'in rely on the caribou and are not part of the Arctic Slope uh, native corporation. So, so it's not just jobs, it's revenue from... Um, the land owning aspect of the regional mm -hmm. the native the regional native corporation. So so I want to ask a little bit more about the relationship between Alaska as a state and the energy industry and, and an interesting little fact that I found up uh, found uh, prior to our, our conversation was that Alaska was granted statehood in 1959, and that was on the heels of a major oil discovery in 1957. And on the basis of that discovery, Congress basically said that the state was economically viable and then granted statehood. Um, since that time, funding for the state or the state government has ranged up to 90 percent of the funding has actually come from the oil industry. Can you tell us a little bit how the, you know, the fortunes of the oil industry have impacted Alaska generally and where Alaska stands right now in terms of its income from, uh, from the oil industry and its general economic condition? Sure. Um, one thing that I think reporters have uh, mistaken is uh, the 90% number, actually. It's 90% of our discretionary mm -hmm. uh, money. We always get some non-discretionary money, and it, it is very significant from the federal government. It covers Medicaid and roads and other things. But um, and I have, believe me, I have tried to get reporters to make that distinction. Oh, thanks but for it's clarifying. A little here. too complicated for many. But uh, so, but nevertheless, the general point you're making is correct. That the state has relied on uh, the oil industry rev revenue uh, almost exclusively uh, for its non-discretionary uh, operations. And what that means is that if there isn't dedicated money from the federal government, if there's things to cover education, if there's money that's needed to support state governments uh, for inspections of food and that kind of thing, we have relied on 
the revenue that comes from oil development, uh, largely from the North Slope. In 1958, it was from a different part of the state, um, but from the Arctic. And uh, that money is taxed. Uh, there's also royalties. Um, but we do not have, unlike any other state, we do not have a state income tax. We do not have a state sales tax. We have uh, uh, property taxes in some of the larger communities. We only have about 700,000 population in the whole state, so it's not very, very high numbers that, that could be taxed. Um, but, you know, unlike Norway, which has uh, a similar history in terms of its oil development found about the same time, they continued with their income tax. Alaska eliminated our income tax. So that's put us in a bit of a bind where we've been reliant primarily on one source of revenue for many, many decades. And while the the tax rate was was high, uh, while the flow was high, that, that might have worked. The state was also smaller. We're at the point now where the legislature has given a, a, quite a few tax breaks to the industry, partly as an incentive to develop more oil, and the numbers just don't add up. We have a deficit of several billion a year um, relying just on the oil revenue and the federal government revenue. So we have to draw from our savings. We do have a significant savings account, but what is done with that savings account is every year, every single Alaskan gets uh, something called a permanent fund dividend, and we've become used to getting $1,000 or more for each person. Well, now those numbers are going down because we're drawing on that to fund state government. So uh, our state government is essentially a, a, a mix of federal government, oil revenue, and drawing down our savings, which at some point is not going to be there anymore. I just wanted to ask you to clarify one point. Now, the, the ANWR is federally owned land. So right. would, the oil, would there also be direct oil revenue to the state of Alaska for uh, development activity on that land, or does it all go to the federal government and through, and through the, you know, through the pipeline? Sorry for that that use of the term. Back to the state's coffers. So uh, about half the revenue would go to the to the state. It, that's what was included in the tax act. Fifty-fifty. Uh, there's been another bill that's been introduced that uh, changed that a little bit to fifty, forty-seven, and three percent to an, a native fund. Uh, but right now, uh, yes, uh, if development occurs, protection takes place, uh, 50% of the revenue from that. Uh, and that's different than royalties. Um, oil economics are always very complicated. Um, but uh, the prediction was, and this has been challenged by many, was that the lease sale alone would result in $1 billion dollars to uh, the federal government mm -hmm. and $1 billion to the state of Alaska. Uh, that's a portion of our state budget in one single year. But um, that, that was how they were able to connect this uh, particular section of the tax bill because it was considered revenue to the federal government, the $1 billion. Now, having said that, uh, no one expects that kind of revenue uh, from the lease sale. I'm not sure how uh, the Congressional Budget Office came up with that. You know, one day they're working on uh, Arctic refuge revenue. The next day they're calculating for Congress something on 
the price of corn, mm -hmm. but um, but it, the data just don't seem to show that it's going to be tremendous revenue from to either entity from the the actual lease sale. But production is something different. So in January, the executive director of the International Energy Agency, Fatih Burrell, uh testified before the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, of which Lisa Murkowski is chairwoman. And he testified that he expects little new oil production in the Anwar before 2030. He said simply that uh, there's too much readily available oil in the lower 48 states for companies to essentially bother with Alaska. And there are political uncertainties as well. Do you expect companies to dive in, and will there be much interest in this required lease sale that's going to have to happen within the next four years? Uh, interesting question. Um, I think there's going to be some interest, but not necessarily from the big guys who have the money to do the development. And by that, I mean Exxon, Shell, ConocoPhillips, um, BP, those are all up there, so they're the ones that are most likely. They may not. They may decide there would be too much public backlash from engaging. On the other hand, they may help fund others who are bidding on the lease sale. Uh, and many times you have oil companies working uh, with partners, and uh, so the, the lead operator could be something like the Arctic Slope Regional Corporation, the Native Corporation, that I that I mentioned, and uh, you might have BP or someone else as a minority partner. So it's going to be interesting to tease that all out. Um, but uh, at the same time, the point that you made is very valid, and that was one of the arguments that we made. Uh, and I I myself testified before the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee in November before this provision was included in the Tax Act, uh, saying look, it, there's cheaper oil elsewhere. There's shale oil throughout the lower 48. The Permian Basin in Texas is very, very productive. Uh, why do we need to go into this highly sensitive, controversial place uh, and open that up for oil and gas drilling? So uh, it, it's hard to know how it's all going to play out because that argument is still valid, but there are some that really don't care about the sensitivity or even – uh, non-publicly owned companies uh, like Hillcorp, which is a, a privately owned company, they may say, we don't really care how the public feels or how the wildlife feels about this. Uh, now, now the, the Wilderness Society isn't necessarily against drilling for oil uh, development, oil development. It, it's, it's more specifically where the oil drilling takes place. And my understanding is that there are other areas in Alaska that may be less ecologically sensitive where development could go could could take place. What's going on in those other areas? Um, why aren't they the focus of new development at this point, or are they? So, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, there are state lands in Alaska that have had development for, for decades now, Prudhoe Bay and the uh, Alpine area, Kuparik, those are all different projects uh, that have resulted in 17 billion barrels of oil uh, since the late 70s. And those areas are not ones that tend to be very controversial. There's existing development there. Um, and uh, the caribou, have, for example, have been able to 
to move away somewhat to less desirable areas, but they have not been, um, they're not confined the same way they would be in the Arctic Refuge because you have mountains very close to the uh-huh. ocean uh, in the Arctic Refuge. So um, areas like the state lands, uh, which were not set aside because of their ecological sensitivity, those are places where there tend not to be as much controversy about production um, and and putting new infrastructure there. And interestingly, uh, there have been some substantial fines in recent years, and companies, uh, a company called Oil Search and others, have been increasing their production of, of state lands. And so now you have the Trans-Alaska uh, pipeline flow actually has been increasing since 2015, and the expectation by the State Department of Natural Resources is that will continue uh, for at least the next decade. The increase should continue. So, you know, as an Alaskan, that's that's a good thing. It means that the state will have more revenue and have to draw on its savings less. But it is, um, you know, it, 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 and it is also deriving revenue from areas that are less sensitive. Let me go back to for a moment, if I may, uh, to a comment you made earlier. Uh, you know, regarding the the Alaskan perspective uh, on this whole issue, you've lived in Alaska for seventeen years. Can you yeah. give us a little bit more insight? Is there? I mean, this sounds crazy. Is there? There, there can't be one view on this in Alaska, right? I mean, not many people live there, many different views. But is there overall a sense of where the state stands on the balance of environment, energy development going forward? Sure. Um, so, as I mentioned earlier, right now, each Alaskan, man, woman, and child, gets uh, a dividend each year from oil production in the state. And in recent years, it's been about $1,000 a person. It's a significant amount of money. Um, if you're interested in maximizing that, you're going to say, sure, you know, anywhere you could drill that could increase my dividend. That's, that's fine. Uh, many Alaskans are, live here because they enjoy the outdoors. Uh, they hunt, they fish, uh, they go out in the winter, they race on their snowmobiles. Um, we call them snow machines here. And um, they want to see certain places uh, preserved. Uh, that's why we live here. We, we embrace that. So um, it's a question of whether you think uh, we have the right amount preserved or, or not. Some people who maybe aren't familiar with how uh, sensitive the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is might say, well, you know, what's another area that is a big state? What's another area that's developed? That doesn't matter to me. I probably will never get to the Arctic. But those of us um, who have a science background, there's a, there's a scholar's letter that is going into the federal government during the comment period, not just from Alaskans, but from scholars throughout the world, actually, um, are, are, are saying that th- there's a reason this place has been protected historically. It's kind of the top of the pyramid in terms of sensitive ecosystems. We should keep that that safe and protected. Um, that may be different than someone, you know, an, an Alaskan who is just not familiar with those details. Got it. One final question for you. It's a broad one. Can Alaska find a sustainable energy development path going forward? 
Well, one thing we haven't spoken about is uh, the tremendous renewables resources in Alaska. We have uh, large amounts of wind throughout the state. Um, we have microgrids in, in villages, which is actually uh, – uh, what that means are electrical systems, often they're hybrids, a uh, combination of uh, wind and backup uh, diesel. Uh, we have tidal resources. We have some of the best renewable resources in the country. Now, having said that, um, your listeners probably know that battery development and transport of renewables is, is an important issue, and that's that's making good progress. And so that's that's one area where Alaska can be uh, quite sustainable from an energy standpoint, uh, both here, but also uh, once those batteries are up to snuff, uh, we can export our tremendous energy resources, while at the same time continuing to be an oil state and, and just confining that to the areas that are less sensitive, like the state lands, where we, as I mentioned earlier, we are growing in terms of our, our flow. Um, and then just briefly, uh, we have other sustainable economic resources like uh, fisheries and, and tourism. Both of those are, are doing quite well. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of the types of uh, economic development that are widely supported throughout the state as opposed to oil development in sensitive areas where it's just very controversial. Lois, thank you very much for talking. And thank you. I enjoyed it. Today's guest has been Lois Epstein, Arctic Program Director at the Wilderness Society in Alaska. Thanks to our listeners for downloading this episode of Energy Policy Now. If you like today's show, please share it with a friend or colleague. And for more energy policy news and insights from the Climate Center, visit our website at climateenergy.upenn.edu or subscribe to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening and have a great day.